Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, you guys, this is Haley, associate producer at the Webby Awards. Going into this new year, do you have any project goals or cool work you've accomplished that you would love to show off, such as creative online games, unique websites, that really nice TikTok account, or that Substack newsletter you cannot stop reading? At a time like this, it's so easy to think what you would look like in Web 3.0. So I'm sure you or a friend are great at making work on today's internet. If so, I'm here to tell you that there is still a bit more time to enter your work into the 26th Annual Webby Awards, where it'll be seen from the most talented people on the internet. The extended entry deadline is Friday, February 11th. This year, we have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including new categories for email newsletters, podcast, social, and even installation experience. Visit webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Only get lost on purpose. Nice. It began with the dream. Free. Open. Keep one web. Go find something you love. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. It's said that the modern version of arguing about directions in the car isn't about what way to go, but which app to use, Waze or Google Maps. Webby Podcast listeners know there's only one acceptable answer to that question. And today on the pod, we have that app's longtime leader, former Waze CEO, Noam Bardeen. Today, Waze is ubiquitous. Driving without it seems, well, scary. But in the early days, not only was Waze unknown, but it was a tiny company competing in a global market with two huge companies from a tiny country, Israel. Early Wazers not only shared their best routes and where speed traps were, but actually drew the Waze map of Israel from scratch. And a large part of Waze's credibility as the most accurate directions app comes from its focus on what's happening locally and its loyal community of drivers. These volunteers actively look out for everything on the road and update routes with accurate real-time information. The story of how they built this loyal community of users who are willing to contribute data is really interesting and has profoundly impacted the world we all live in today. We started off the conversation by looking back at those early days of Waze. So the origin story of Waze is from our founder, El Chabtai, who got an iPack from his girlfriend. Now we're talking about 2006. People didn't know the iPack was a, a PDA, a personal a digital assistant. I don't know what they're called. Anyway, basically not a mobile phone that wasn't connected to the, to the internet that you would sync with your PC and then you'd go out, do whatever you want. You came back, you'd, you'd sync it again and it had some navigation software on it. And so it would start driving around with it and was kind of fascinated by it. You know, if, if you haven't, in those days, GPSs were kind of rare. And you built an app where you could mark speed traps on, on the navigation software. 
And he went to a forum of IPAC users and distributed, you know, offered this for free and people downloaded it and went out and marked and in a few days, they'd marked all the speed cameras in Israel, right? So this was wow. in Israel. And that was his first exposure to a community, just a bunch of random people working together on a common problem. And he was really excited about it, began automating some things, building some things. And then he got a very famous cease and desist letter from the incumbent map company in Israel. Uh -huh. And, you know, he went to this meeting, which, you know, today we, we joke about that meeting, but at the time it was a very different world. And they said, look, you're infringing on our intellectual property by offering this application. If you charge for it, we'll take a cut. But if you offer it for free, we're going to shut you down. And it was kind of mind boggling for it was a big open source guy, and you know, in the uh, internet, whatever, like who talks that way, even in 2006. And so he basically said, screw you and deleted the map completely. And he started using the original group that had mapped the, these speed cameras to begin mapping roads. And he found some open source software, he built some software and began recording GPS tracks. So people would drive mm -hmm. routes, they'd record GPS track, they'd send it, it back to him, he would merge it began building some automated tools, some better manual tools, and slowly this map began growing. And it was then called Free Map Israel. Hmm. It was amazing sort of how quickly things were, were mapped. It would build the basic point systems in it. And it reached a point that, you know, very quickly you kind of run out of roads to map. And so one community member actually went to Jordan and drove the roads in Jordan, started mapping them. And then the rest of the community members blew up at it. It's not fair. It's not in Israel. Why has your rank gone up so much? And, so the whole dynamics of a community were there in kind of a small focus. Uh -huh. And he was working with Amir Chanal, the, the other founder at the time. And in a certain point, he said, look, Amir, this is becoming a full-time job, right? So we're onto something here. Right. And, uh, and then they decided to, to sort of roll it into a company and, and raise money. And they raised their A round in uh, 2008. Okay. Um, they asked Uri to join them as the CEO and, and, and they raised the A round. They raised the $12 million A round which today might not be considered big, knowing the craziness that's going on today, but in those sure. days it was unheard of. And the basic reason that, that this happened was the world at the time it was built by the mapping world had two maps of the world. It was a duopoly. There was Navtech and there was Teleatlas. And those are the two maps. You know, Microsoft had evaluated building its own map and decided it was too expensive. And it was too expensive because to build a map, you had to basically have a fleet of trucks with lots of equipment on them driving every road. Navtech drove every road in the US every two years. Hmm. Let's put it in perspective, this operation. There's yeah. 4,000 people you know, in the company. And the barrier to entry was so high to build the initial map, but then also to, to refresh it, to keep it. And so um, at the time, Nokia bought Navtech for $8.5 billion. And TomTom uh, -Tom bought uh, um, uh, Teleatlas for $4.5 billion. So along comes Ehud, you know, in his a, a balcony in Tel Aviv, which is the equivalent of a garage in America. <laughs> and it basically says, no, we can do it differently. We can do it with volunteers. Right. And the big bet it, they were making at the time was that the cost of a GPS chip would fall so much that every cell phone would have a GPS chip in it. So even then it was like they were using the iPack and which was a very high end device and only some people had that, but they knew even then that as long as it was only iPacks, it probably wouldn't work, but that eventually everybody would have that. Exactly. It's two things. Yeah. One, that every phone would have or, GPS. Yeah. Yeah. Two, that the cost of, of a, a internet or mobile uh, internet would be cheap enough. Connectivity. Yeah. Everybody would have it. And at the time, connectivity was expensive. If you yeah. and, uh, and in that world, you're going to need real-time information because you're constantly connected and you know where you are, et cetera, et cetera. 
Now, this is the world where Symbian or Nokia ruled the world. A Microsoft phone was like number two. And uh, the iPhone had just come out and if you wanted to install anything, you had to jailbreak the iPhone, it didn't have an app store yet. I mean, it was a, really the beginning of, of the mobile trends that we see today. Um, but they raised the money, they founded the company, and they started uh, building out the tools more professionally. They rebranded the company at Waze. And then January of 2009, they launched a kind of consumer focus. Up then, I was very much a geeky, it was sort of a badge of honor. If you were a real geek in Israel, you knew about FreeMap Israel and you had the app. Right? Yeah. But uh, Waze came out in January of 2009. Right. And so when I joined in March of 2009, they'd already launched in Israel. They had a few tens of thousands uh, of users and several thousand active uh, at the time. And it was a very different application because Israel is a tiny place. So you could download the whole map to your phone. Right. right. And now that meant that the obviously would work offline and all kinds of other advantages. But you can't do that in the US. You can't do that in the world, right? The, the US is 50 times larger uh, than Israel. And so uh, we had to begin building out sort of a client server uh, structure. We had to build out tiles instead of downloading the whole map. And it basically built out the infrastructure to launch this. And we opened up the platform in the summer uh, in the US. We tried to limit it to very specific cities and we failed miserably. People were just popping up different places. In the US, what we did was a little different uh, than, than uh, Israel, where it was built from scratch. There is a public domain map in Israel called in America called the Tiger Map, which is uh, published by the Census Bureau. So we took that as kind of a base. So you didn't necessarily depend on every person driving on every street to get there to get the map of the road. You had some some beginning. Well, we would need that to happen. Okay. But right. when you open the map for the first time, you saw something that resembled the map. Right. right. If you open the app. And so that was like a big deal. But we did not know directions. We did not know speeds. We did not know if you could make a right or a left turn. We did not know if something was an intersection or a bridge. We ended up launching a product that was really terrible. But what we saw was that beginning of the community. In the beginning, we needed a lot of raw data. And so we, we started with gamification as a way of getting providing incentives for people to drive when we can't really get them where they want to go. Right. And so the first level was these dots. The whole map was covered with these dots. And if you were the first user to drive down a road, your avatar would turn, turn into this Pac-Man. By the way, we got a cease and desist letter from the Pac-Man company. Sure you did, yeah. So it's a, it's a road muncher, not a right, Pac-Man. Right, right, right. And the road muncher would begin eating these points, and, and a bar would drop down and get all these points for these things. And people loved it, right? And you think about it, the first thing that gets mapped are all the highways, because most people drive there. And then it gets harder and harder to find these dots. So you have to get off the highway and go yeah. further and further away. And people would go on dates to find this. It was like, in a way, it was a, a geo game, kind of like Niantic Labs are doing today, things like that. How hard was it to learn at the beginning to like what to do with the data that came back? Like, was that really obvious or was that, mm -hmm. was that really complicated? Well, it was very obvious what we needed to do. It was very hard to do it. Uh -huh. So it's a real computing, it's a serious computing problem in addition to this whole user, user part, which is about getting the data, the actual what to do with the data is like a really serious computational thing. So there, there are several levels of problem, right? The first level is how do you get a lot of data, which you need, right? And that's a, that's a sort of human problem. Yeah. How do you convince people to give you this data? Second is once you have this raw data, how do you normalize it into which roads it does it represent? Is this a new road or is this a shift off an existing road and actually build out the grid of, of the network, right? Then you need humans to come in and give names because you know no amount of data is going to tell you what the name of the road is, right? So you need humans to come in and do that and also connect some of the routes and the complex intersections. Right? 
And then you need to use the data to discover new roads, right? If suddenly someone's driving a place where you don't have a road, well, that's probably a road. Right. And, you know, for a while we tried to solve this completely algorithmically and overall did not get the results we were looking for. But what we found is that the biggest, the best power is this combination of humans and algorithms. Well, that's sort of the power of ways in many ways is combining those two. Yeah. It's so interesting what people are excited to be really passionate users about, right? It's like you found, you. I mean, traffic and, and directions and I mean, it's it's seemingly boring, but this is something human beings like have been talking about forever, right? Like you can go back to so, stories of like, what's the best way to get to so-and-so and everybody's got their opinion and- Really right. traffic yeah. is the scourge of modern life in many ways, but it's also something that everybody can relate to, right? We all go through it. And we yeah. all feel just as helpless. In many ways, traffic is a great equalizer, right? You could have the newest Ferrari or a 1980 Chevy, and you'll be driving the same rate. You're both driving at three miles an hour in traffic. One of the, one of the things from our design principles from day one, and this Yael Eli ran our product org, um, she was very focused on the emotional impact that different uh, UI or uh, elements or um, the features have on the, on the, on the person themselves, on the human. And so you know, one, one interesting phenomenon is you'll see, you see it today, right? You, so you're on a road somewhere, there are a hundred lasers in front of you. The road is painted purple, full of traffic. People have reported a thousand reports of traffic there. And yet you'll report the thousand plus one report. Like you do that not because you're actually helping anyone, but it gives you some sense of control of the situation. Here's something to do, right? Because mm. that helplessness of you're just sitting there without anything to do. And those feelings were very important items in the way we designed our product. It was always about how do you create that feeling with the user? And what, one of the things in the beginning, we didn't have many users, right? Today you see a lot of other users on the map and we saw that there is a wow moment when you actually saw someone else on the map. And so we actually engineered the zoom levels of the app to try and, and catch the other person into your viewport so that you would see the other person and realize you're not alone, right? right? And, and yeah. that, that kind of emotional response is something that I think many applications fail at understanding is that what is the emotional response you're trying to create? How do you engineer an emotional response? I don't think I was that early in the days of ways. I was probably, I was trying to look through my email to see when if like I told somebody, Hey, have you checked this out? I think it was like 2011, 2012, but so not that early, but, but I remember at the beginning, the difference was as a user is if you had ways, nobody else had it. And so you would drive around and you had this like secret key that would allow you to just like shave crazy amounts of time off traffic jams, all the stuff you go around it, you get all these, it was amazing. But then over time, everybody had ways. And I would imagine, you know, the problem I would think sort of changed for you all, or maybe, maybe it was a spectrum or I'm not, you can tell me, but I would imagine that like designing an app that's for like, you know, 10 million people in the U.S., just to take the US is is and helping those 10 people get around the other whatever it is 70 million cars or something is not the same thing as when everybody has the app and is following ways. And in many ways, we think about our tagline in the beginning was ways outsmarting traffic together, right? Uh -huh. That outsmarting traffic component, what was sort of what we were known for, right? Yeah. And ways made you feel empowered, you knew something others didn't, you were part of the cool kids who got around traffic. And there were two experiences that we, we said were equally powerful. One is that moment where you listen to ways, you get off the highway and you're driving on a surface street, looking at all those idiots on the highway sitting there and you feel like you're, you're a Superman, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm flying past them. Yeah. 
But the second is when you don't listen to ways and you get stuck there and you watch those people driving by and like, why didn't I listen? Right. And yeah. both are just as powerful. Yeah. In the sense of, of really, that's the brand uh, of the app. And, and, and uh, but you're right. The bigger we got, the the more difficult it became to actually find uh, these shortcuts. Uh, we got a lot of complaints from cities, especially very wealthy cities, that were very upset that people were driving through their their streets and they tried to sue us and they tried to uh, block us. They tried to play with the algorithm. Tried all, to do all kinds of different stuff. And our position was always very clear. If the road is, if you're allowed to drive in there, a car is allowed to drive there, we will map it. And if it's faster to go that way, we'll route traffic through it. What we begin doing at a large scale is really load balancing the roads, right? We're maximizing the throughput of all available routes because, you know, if, if we send too many people down one route, begin slowing down, then we'll send people back to the other route. And then when it slows down, and so we're always trying to optimize the best kind of for everyone. Now, the problem you run to at a certain point is that you just, there's nothing else to do, right? There's almost so much infrastructure. So many cars can get through that. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And that's kind of what led us later on to, to carpooling and this idea of let's get cars off the road. I mean, from a, like what the trust level that people had with the app and the relationship they had with it as it, as everyone else started to have it did that relationship change you know like it, did you feel like you were losing the as you're saying the outsmart the outsmarting part and how did you at least from my perspective maybe i wasn't getting that direction onto the side road that let me go by everybody anymore cuz everybody else had that too but it was probably still better to follow ways cuz if the if the bridge ahead was closed or something at least i wasn't you know, just like sort of going towards that without any knowledge. And that's the problem when you think about uh, um, intuitions come from experience. And so if your intuition is to take the 101, if it's always faster, it's because you kind of learned that. And 80% of the time, you're going to be right. But those 20% or 10% of the time where you're wrong, where the 101, there was an accident and shut down and you're stuck in it. The reason to use ways every day is for those times. And those become these radical moments of value that we can deliver. But to get there, we need to convince you to use us every day, even when most of the time your intuitions are correct. Yeah. And, and, and that was a, a part of the kind of emotional aspect was to make sure that people really felt the need. And, and what, what happens, you know, at Waze, we discovered it was about four, if you use Waze about four times a month, 
once a week, you start using more and more. If you use it less than four times, you'll probably stay at that level. You're not going to churn, but you'll stay at that level forever. Hmm. And this really goes into kind of what the use case is. If you're using ways as a navigation app, when you're going on vacation, then you will get a certain amount of value. If you use it every day, we're going to learn your routes. You're going to learn about you. You're going to learn about, about ways and you're going to start discovering more features and you're going to become a power user. And so a lot really depends on, on the use case that the user is doing. We always focus on the community use case. And that's another thing that's very important. And this in general is important for startups, right? There, there are a million ideas. And if you have smart people, these are a million smart ideas. And you need to say no to most of them. And the way to say no, no is to have a clear focus on what matters to you. And for us, commuting mattered much more than navigation. That's mm. why from a map perspective, it's much more important to, for us to be the first ones to know about a new road and open it up than to be 100% positive that we have the geometry correct or that, that we might make a mistake. We'd rather make a mistake uh, than to be to be late. Hmm. Sometimes I like use ways for a very short route and I can feel, I feel a little bit moment of self-awareness, like really silly about it. Like, you know how to go, it's like, a, you know, a mile and a half, but I'm so afraid, like probably irrationally so of not using it and having it be the day that the car's broken down and that I get into a 45 minute thing. Cause probably one time that happened to me where I didn't have it on. And then I ended up in some crazy thing, as you were saying before, and I didn't use it because I just wasn't paying attention or something, or I thought there was something broken. Um, it's really a dependence, you know? It, it's actually, I think a little bit more than that. When you get used to driving with Waze a lot, when you drive without it, you feel naked. You yeah, feel 100%. like you've got blinders on your eyes, right? Hmm. But I think from, from kind of product designers perspective, when you reach a point where, where the cut where the user is doing kind of what you designed the app for and can't live without it. Right. That's the, the moment where you really know you, you've kind of created the real product market fit. Right. When you create an experience that if it was taken away, your life would be much worse. Yeah. Tell me this. Can you, and I'll tell you why I ask you this. Can you, the question is, can you beat ways? And so what I mean by that is I've been in frequent amount, not for a while now, but I have been in many Ubers specifically in Los Angeles where they're using ways great and it says that i'm going to arrive where i'm going at you know 214 and you know stuff kind of slows down and they decide that they they can do better and they turn off the recommended route they never get there before 214 when they do that they almost invariably get there at 222 or something and so you invariably are like hey you can't beat ways stop trying to beat ways you can't do it no 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 i know this way you know, but I always wonder if sometimes they're successful at it because they keep doing it. When we look at a route, we look at a lot more than just the amount of time it's going to take to go from A to B. We also look at, for example, the number of turns you make. There's a penalty, especially for left turns versus right turn, right? So there's mm -hmm. all these penalties that go in where you could have a route that's actually faster and it's not tailored to your specific needs. So you could beat ways that way. There's also traffic changes all the time. Like right. all our assumptions when you started driving change the minute you started driving, right? And so it, it sometimes, you know, we assumed something and the world decided to do something else, right? So, but over time, you know, there's just a human can't see what a, what masses of data and masses of users can see, which was what the Waze app sees. Yeah. Tell me, so um, Waze has done a lot of work with cities, but you have, Waze has a city partnership, which uh, has been around for some time now, I believe. And... Um, you work with lots of cities all over the world and share all this, share all, not all, I don't know about all, you can tell me, share information back with them around what's going on with traffic and in real time and have 
um, you know, played a huge role in a lot of different crises through those partnerships. Um, tell me a little bit about how that came about and sort of where that is now. So uh, Ways for Cities, as we call it, and Ways for Crisis. Uh, Ways for Cities began actually in, was the Olympics in when the Olympics, when Rio was getting prepared for the Olympics, they built a very sophisticated sort of um, municipal control center where it piped in data from all the different parts of the cities and could manage it, et cetera. And one day we get contacted by them and Diane Eisner, who, who ran partnerships, went down to Brazil uh, to meet them. And basically what she ended up doing is embedding ways into the, the uh, that center. So suddenly you see a side by side with everything, but when a, a user would report an accident on a highway, that center could dispatch an ambulance directly to that place. And so we began being embedded into the fabric of the city. And then took it much further in, in terms of opening up APIs uh, to cities in general and turning it into a real program. And the idea of this program, it, it, it's bi-directional. First of all, it's free. Like we don't want to be a vendor to a city, right? right? That, you know, that never ends well. <laughs> and, but, we give them free access where they can get access from us about events going on on the road, speeds, traffic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they can push back to us things that they know into the future. This road's going to be closed. Mm. You know, there's a construction going on here, et cetera. And so it was definitely a data exchange in terms of value. But then, like most things that you open up, it goes to places you'd never dreamed of. So the city of Washington, D.C. did a, a pothole palooza after a, one winter where any any user who would mark a pothole within 48 hours, they would send a truck to fix it. Wow. We later launched a, a beacon program, part of, the, uh, of our Ways for Cities, where we have a kind of a design that they can take um, buy some simple $2 beacons and stick them in their tunnels to, to the roof of the tunnel, and suddenly you can navigate underground. And, and this is where when you're on a mission that – makes sense you know it's very uh, uh, easy to find allies that want to go on the same mission nobody likes traffic everybody everybody connects to it as a user as a city planner as the mayor of the of the city and and with that we also evolved into the ways for crisis where uh, what we've seen happen it started with the sandy storm in in, in new york the, the hurricane where the city was and new jersey was, was flooded and it was a big problem of of, of gas stations running out of fuel and the worst thing is people would actually drive to the gas station, burning their fuel to discover there's no fuel at the gas station, right? And so FEMA contacted us and asked if we could help. And we had a feature that allowed you to mark a, a, a prices a, of gas in gas stations. And so we quickly deployed it with kind of a hack that you would just write a, a something to say that it was gas. And, a, and that began as, as a way of, of understanding where you need to send gas, where there is gas. And slowly that grew into a, a program today where when there are earthquakes or, or natural disasters, it's about marking escape routes, it's about closing flooded roads, it's about marking where resources are, whether it's gas or food or water. And obviously, as the world continues to uh, warm up, this is unfortunately becoming more and more uh, active and it's happening more and more in different areas. And so that's become a team and also a set of tools that we offer cities about mm -hmm. how they can use this in times of crisis. As you can imagine, uh, when the pandemic began, we literally saw our traffic, see your whole traffic drop 90% and everything connects to that. Revenue, data, everything, right? So that was a huge, the first year of the pandemic was really, really, really hard hmm. in that sense. But what we saw starting from last summer is that other types of activities began growing on the Waze network. Traffic is worse than it ever was. Yeah. 
And what's happening is people are not using public transit, right? People, right. people don't want to go in trains yeah. anymore. And so we're seeing the effect, although much less people are driving because people are working from home, right? A lot of us are working from home still, but yet the ones who are driving in are not using the public, the, the trains. So there's definitely a, 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 a change for the worse in terms of people driving alone in cars instead of public transit and, and really creating traffic and pollution and everything else that goes with it. As you were describing some of the cities, um, the integration and partnership with cities, I, I was just thinking, you know, it could, it's almost like the amount of things that Waze could tell you is like almost infinite, right? Like you're telling people in a crisis where there's gas or there's no gas or where there's PPE, you could also be telling them whether there's like, you know, saffron at the store there or, you know, uh, donuts at the, I mean, in, some of this comes into advertising a little bit, but to your earlier point about focus, what is the problem we're trying to solve? But, you know, how, as you get bigger and bigger, as ways get bigger and bigger, how does, how do you sort of, how does the team there and how did you think about that? So, so this is one of the problems. Again, when, when, when things begin going well, you get all these great ideas, you hire smart people to get smart ideas. And what we've tried to stay, stay true to is what's our use case. Our use case is, is primarily commuting, right? And we expanded it since the pandemic to look a little more at, at navigation and longer rides, right? But we are a driving company. Like we, we made a decision not to go into walking or bicycles or public right. transit or all that. We said we want to do one thing and be the best at it. And we want to keep going deeper and deeper into that one thing. So that was one way of filtering out noise. And of course, we could build a walking app. We could do every, anything, right? But mm. we, we, we were going to stay focused on what we do. The, the second thing was, okay, what's on the priority of the commuter. And so if you're navigating in the middle of nowhere, yes, it's very important for you to know kind of where the gas stations are. If you're in your town, you know where they are. You want to know wh where's the cheapest gas. Now that yeah. becomes important, right? Which gas station should you go into or how long is the wait? It, that being said, our use cases are about driving. So yeah, knowing the, the, the inventory of a store is very interesting, but that's something that's much more of a search problem, right? Or a, a search or search mindset. Right. When you're you're not going to think of ways as the way to look for is the inventory available at a store. You'll do that somewhere else. You'll look at ways about how do I get to that store now in the best way. A couple additional things around mapping and driving. I'm super curious about one is self-driving and just how you think about that. And not I mean, I guess from the perspective of ways, but I guess the way just to put like a little anecdote, I have also I've driven around sometimes in ways in a place where I on what using ways in a place I didn't know where I was like in LA or is some place I've gone going to and I'm depending on ways to really get me there and had that moment where I sort of thought like you know who's who's the computer here who's or who's in who's in charge because ultimately I'm just doing exactly what ways tell, tells me and I have no idea where I am I really don't and if like ways stop working at that moment I, I would be completely lost um and so you start thinking about the relationship between, uh, you know, self-driving self -driving and traffic navigation. And when you have two computers talking to each other and, and what that's going to be like. And so, do you, I mean, is that going to be like a, a boon for traffic? Is it going to be a good thing ultimately? Or, or how, have you how, how do you think about it? Well, it's a, I mean, let's start from the future, right? 50 years from now. We're not going to be driving. Computers will be driving. They'll do a much better job than us. Uh, there'll be much less accidents. We will be able to uh, um, 
uh, reach efficiencies that we really haven't thought of. But that's going to happen kind of way out there. And the bigger challenge with self-driving is, is the, how to get there. Right? And so one of the problems with self-driving is that it's very easy to get to like an 80% product. Mm. It, today, still impossible to get to 100% product. And I, I see self-driving go through a few stages, right? Stage number one really is solving the engineering problem. And I think this is the biggest engineering challenge of our generation. I mean, this is like going to the moon or, or you know, atom bombs or whatever, but it's being funded by private companies, which is interesting, unlike everything else. But so that's kind of one step. Once that's done, there's a phase of regulation, right? How are we going to regulate this? Who's responsible for the car? Then there's a phase of production. We're going to need to produce a tremendous amount of these cars. And if we just produce fuel-powered cars and not electric cars, then we're really shooting ourselves in the foot, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. The car's driving. It doesn't matter if it's fuel or if, yeah. if it's self-driving or not. If it has fuel in it, you're part of destroying the, econ the environment. So we need to move to electric. And obviously, it's a production question with electric. How much can we produce of these cars to actually replace the full fleet? And then there's a the question of the business model. And this is, I think, the hardest question for self-driving cars. If self-driving cars are going to be uh, sold individually to a person, right, then doesn't do anything but traffic except make it worse. We'll be, you know, since you're not driving, you can play with your phone. You're willing to take more time in the car. Right. And so there'll be more cars out right. there, right? But if we stay with one person per car, that's like, Again, we haven't helped at all in this. In this, electricity is better, obviously, if we do that. And by the way, no one says that that self-driving has to be electric. You could have fuel-powered cars, which most of the self-driving cars today are. Yeah, yeah. But in when you go back to the business model, if you go for a robo taxi, which is kind of the, the future, imaginary future, then you have a problem that your competition for a long time is going to be a sixteen thousand dollar car and a twenty-five thousand dollar a year person. Right. While you're putting in a car that's going to be vastly expensive in the beginning. And yes, we like to say Moore's law. Moore's law is fine. We're talking about small gadgets. We're talking about a car that lasts for 10 years, at least. Moore's law is more complicated than that. And so the business model itself is going to be seriously challenged. And I think that the first companies that, that get into this hopefully will have a search business or something else to fund this mm -hmm. because this is going to be a, a money losing business for a long time. Just right? because the capital is like the, the initial capital is going to be so expensive. It, 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 and it's huge capital expenditures, but yeah. also you're like, no one's going to pay more to have a computer drive their car as a person, right. especially if the person will probably do a better job for a long time. Right. Right. So like, you don't care if you've ever been in a self-driving car, it's, it's a fascinating experience. Like, you go in, you sit there, the wheel turns by itself. It's like mind blowing for about five minutes. Uh -huh. and then you're like, yeah, it's a car that drives itself. Just like what I thought. <laughs> and then it's like, how much does it cost? When does it come? Is it clean? What does it smell like? You know, right. all those kind of operational aspects come into play yeah so we've got a long way with autonomy and i'm pretty bullish on companies like tesla because they can they have a business model today they sell cars right. and the car can be 90 percent self-driving and that's a great feature okay but the problem with robo taxi taxis it has to be a hundred percent now 90 percent has nothing hmm. there's no incremental path there's all or nothing and all or nothing is really really difficult that's why i don't think there's any room for startups in this space hmm. it's just the amount of capital the amount of time until you actually get meaningful revenue. And even then it's not clear what it is, the problem. By the way, self-driving cars should be theoretically a public good. They should be a, a, it's similar to electricity. They should be, a, if, we have, if we could you know, get our act together to get anything done, it would be the most efficient way to roll this out would be in one network per city, right? And not 
to have or one network for you know for the country right we have one grid of electricity except for texas because they know better but everyone else has is on the federal grid right with standards in it and the electricity get, comes across right the fact that we have these competing companies none of them have enough engineers but they're all trying to build exactly the same thing and by the way i do believe strongly that by the time it goes mainstream the quality of the technology for all the companies will be more or less the same Hmm. It really isn't. Think about car companies today. No one really has a, a technological advantage over right. the other. Eh, it's brand, things like that. Same thing here. Because time is not a factor. It's going to take so long to get there that everyone's going to catch up. And even the latecomers have a huge advantage of starting fresh. You know, they don't need to put a data center in the back of the car because today, you know, there have been so many advances on, on, on miniaturization. Um, so, so, so just to finish that, I think the navigation aspect itself is is obviously not the big uh, challenge here um, but there's also a societal challenge to really make the change that we want we need people to share cars this idea of owning a car has to go away and that's a lot of why Waze launched a carpooling product right we the fact that a human's driving or computer's driving doesn't matter the question is how many people are in the car and today we have five seats in a car and one of them is usually taken so there are four empty seats and we have to be able to fill them up by the way, Uber and Lyft, I think, need to make a massive investment in their in their in, in multiple person. You um, you left Waze, I think, earlier this year, right? Correct, February. So, I, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, what what you're thinking about doing next. And I, you know, I know that sometimes people don't want to share that, so you can you can share what you feel comfortable there. But I also, um, you know, as part of that, I you know, I saw that you've you've been talking a bit about some like a a sort of I would say a platform or a way of thinking about business around vision, mission, strategy. Um, and just wanted to ask you about that. And what are some of the big lessons you've learned, you know, from taking ultimately, which was a pretty small Israeli company into, you know, a global brand that's while owned by Google is still fairly independent. And a lot of people don't even know it's owned by Google that, you know, has had a huge impact on culture in general. Um, what, what's some of the, what have you learned from that? And, and how are you thinking about, you know, this mission, vision, strategy sort of so I, I left in February. I don't know what I'm going to be doing next. I do think I have another company in me, and, but I don't know what that company is and what stage and everything and trying to figure out uh, what, what I do next. So I've been doing a few different things. I built some uh, a project around micropayments that I'm really interested in around the, for newspapers. I learned a lot about the newspaper and, and news business. Bottom line, don't go into it. <laughs> Um, spent a lot of time working with different companies, you know, all these kind of advisory fluff positions, but the, the working with these companies is very interesting. And I'm talking about companies from, you know, very early stage, seed funded to, you know, $50 billion public technology companies, 10,000 employees, right? So different sizes of companies. And, um, I'm, there are two things that I find it really surprising one in many of these companies. It, it's not clear why people are doing things. It was very clear when they started out, but some even that are just starting out don't really have their mission vision in place or, or understand what it is. And I look at mission vision not as this kind of McKinsey document, the PowerPoint slides, you know, whatever it is. I don't believe in these big plans, etc. But I believe you have to have clarity on what matters. And that clarity has to drive everything you do. It has to drive the org structure, the technology choices, it has to dri drive the feature list, where you're putting your money, what kind of people you're hiring. It all goes back to that. And, and that's one thing I, I had failed at 
pretty miserably in my, in my first two companies. Uh, but I think that especially the first company I founded, uh, Delta 3, it's a voice over IP company at the beginning of the internet. Because we never really had a mission, we just kept vacillating back and forth between different ideas and different features, different products. And you see this a lot, especially young uh, uh, founders. There's so many good ideas. When you, and it's, again, when you get some traction, you get so many good ideas. And the question is, how do you say no to most of them? And that to me is what vision really means. Like knowing your, the vision is kind of the change that you believe is going to happen that you see differently than others. And the mission is your company's role in making that change, right? And so knowing what your role is brings clarity. So in our case at Waze, knowing that we were about commuting was super important. How do you think about the interplay between vision and mission? So to me, great startups have an idea of the future that's unique to how they see it. In our case at Waze, we believe that in the future, people will drive with their cell phones, with an app, a driving app on their cell phone all the time, whenever they drive. And that's a crazy idea, right? Because at the time, you only used the GPS when you rented a car when you're a different right, right. city. But we we saw it. And, and the reason is because we believe that the, the GPS chips are going to be cheap enough that every phone will have a GPS. That internet bandwidth on your phone will be cheap enough that you'll be able to use it all the time and not worry about it. And it, that we'll be able to, with all this real-time information, give you value that you couldn't get otherwise. Right? So that was kind of our vision of how the world's going to look. Our mission hmm. it, it, to, to, to bring this world about right. was to build an application for our users that could take advantage of the fact that the others weren't doing it. Right? Basically, how do we uh, outsmart traffic using our users together uh, to build this? And that was our mission. And our mission was focused on commuting. From that came the strategy. And so then our strategy was breaking that down into, well, what's unique about the commute? Well, you, you care about real-time data much more than historical because history, you know, you live there. So you care about what changed, what's new. You want to, you're willing to take more risks because you're not going to get lost. You kind of know where you are more or less, right? People like to ask us, what's the difference between our algorithm and Google Maps algorithm? Obviously a lot of differences in different companies, but at the end of the day, we optimize for taking, for shortcutting and for taking advantage of opportunities, right? Quickly, because that's the, our, that's what we promise. That's our brand promise to our users. And that's what we do, right? They have other constraints. And so their algorithms operate differently, right? Depending on what they're trying to, the effect they're trying to achieve. And so having that clarity begins breaking down the components of it. But I think the number one challenge that any leader has is to create a clear model for saying no and being able to communicate that to everyone, all the stakeholders, all the employees, everyone. Not everyone has to agree with it, right? Where it's not a democracy, but at the same time, everybody has to understand it. And that, and also people have to call you out as a leader when you begin doing things that are counter to your mission. You know, like when it's just about my idea is better than your idea, you know, you don't build great things. Noem Bardeen, thank you for joining us on the Webby podcast. Uh, I, I do want to point out to everybody that you also, in addition to all that stuff, you also solved one of the world's great problems at Waze, which is for the most part, People who have ways in their car, their husbands and wives or wives and wives or husbands and husbands, partners and partners don't really argue about directions anymore. It's it's kind of an incredible thing. They might argue yeah. about whether they should use Waze or Google Maps, but they don't really argue about directions. And it's it's a beautiful thing. It, it is. But the flip side of that is people claim that we're responsible for the world getting dumber because people don't know where they are anymore, don't, <laughs> don't have spatial understanding, et cetera. You so, never win. you know, cuts both ways, like everything in life. Yeah. 
Thank you so much to Noam for joining me on the Webby Podcast and for sharing so many great stories of ways. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our editor is Kate Miskin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our producer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sir is Haley Lewis. Music is Poddington Bear. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. <laughs>